0: All profit is value extraction. And that means that all profit is theft from you.
1: Corporate America is on welfare and you've got to get them off welfare.
2: So we're in part three now. Um, So I have a couple things to share with you guys real quick here before we start back on on it. One, I took this out of my MR2. This is the electrical junction box, which I thought was the problem. And uh, it looks like it's just fine, except where I broke the plastic clip there. So I'm not really sure what the problem is with that. The other thing I discovered last night is that um, Chapo Trap House exists in the same uh, fictional universe as Breaking Bad and Welcome to Night Vale. If you go by Don Markstein's shared universe criteria, they all link together via the the podcast comedy Bang Bang. Uh, so Bob Odenkirk played. Saul Goodman on the Comedy Bang Bang podcast. And then Comedy Bang Bang did a crossover episode with The Thrilling Adventure Hour, which did a crossover episode with uh Welcome to Night Vale. And then James Adomian played Jesse Venture on Comedy Bang Bang and Trapo Trap House. So they're all in the same universe. I'm I'm sure your your minds are all blown, but
1: that is quite a web. Yeah. I'm also in the same universe as them.
2: <laughs> no, no, it's fictional. It's not real.
1: Yeah, I'm fictional. <laughs>
2: oh, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, in that case, I, um... thought I, told...
1: I thought I thought I led with that with you guys. Oh, I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I I think this means that that you and and the rest of us live in Scott Ackerman's head. Uh and or maybe his dreams or something, you know.
1: I anyway, doubt it, that, but you know, maybe
2: that's that's what I came up with last with last night when I couldn't fall asleep, so making connections with the you were that high you still couldn't sleep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, got out, get out the red yarn and the thumbtacks and
1: how how does Pepe Sylvia tie into all of this? yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all
2: right, so that's all I have. Sorry. sorry to waste your time with that bullshit but uh so Brandon where were we on on this
1: uh i was just finishing up all of the like organizations and everything that kind of spawned off from uh the league of revolutionary black workers book club that they started so i was i was at the tail end of that uh after the league of revolutionary black workers eventually does split up the book group stay or the the reading group stayed around they renamed it from from the ground up and they opened their own bookstore it was the from the ground up bookstore and just because i didn't really get into it earlier every it seems like everyone in this era started their own bookstore it was like the thing you did from the ground up which was the reading group that the league of revolutionary black workers started had their own bookstore black star productions that spawned off from the league of revolutionary black workers had their own bookstore the motor city labor league had their own bookstore and in numerous instances these were in like the same neighborhoods as other leftist bookstores
3: so were these like actually just like fronts were they selling drugs or something which i think would be cool i'm not (laughs) condemning that at all but like you're right you're like oh well that was just what they did is everyone opened their own bookstore i'm like are there any mafia bookstores? Or, like, what's the what's the deal here? No, as
1: best as I can tell is uh, people were a lot more into, like, following their particular, like, ideology very closely. So, you know, there would be a Trotskyist bookstore, a Leninist bookstore, an anarchist bookstore, so on and so forth.
3: It's actually kind of funny.
1: Hmm. But it actually seems like... These don't seem like fronts. The Black Star Bookstore was a front only in so much as they had an entire printing operation going. No, leftist bookstores were actually like a much, much bigger deal in the earlier part of the 1900s. I actually have an entire book where they get into a lot of that and how there was like crackdowns on leftist literature in I think the 30s or 40s. Um, Yeah, I mean, if that's something you're genuinely interested in, uh, books on Trial, Red Scare in the Heartland is a good book. Okay. Um, well, I'd say it's good. The first quarter is good, but I, I bounce around between books a lot.
0: So, basically, the bookstore was just the podcast of their day. Everyone was just starting their own, <laughs> yes, own reach, There you go. Uh, that sounds like it exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think I could really put it a lot better. But I mean, like, it was also... They were organizing spots too, you know. Like all of the anarchists would meet up at the anarchist bookstore. Uh, I think, I think it was the Black Star bookstore that they said. You know, people would just come hang out. It, it, this was, I think, one of the great successes, or, it, or rather, it, it shows some of the great successes of Drum. People would get fired and come to the bookstore to discuss issues, discuss what happened, how they can. Uh, work with the union to get their job back, or talk to somebody and find out who else might be hiring. There were accounts of uh, people would just go there to to bullshit and hang out, or like they're having trouble at home and like get one of their comrades' opinions on wh- whatever's going on. Uh, it was it was a very social place. Like you know, maybe in a bind, that was where you slept for the night, like that sort of shit. It was. Very much a community organizing spot in a lot of instances. That
3: is very cool.
2: And they actually sold books though to pay the bills, or was it like more I think it was like an afterthought. <laughs> okay.
1: Um no, I mean every city I've lived in for years always has one or two leftist bookstores. But yeah, this I I think that there were instances where there were at least two or three bookstores in on like the same little like stretch of road. Hmm. I'm sure they were just, like, staring at the window like fucking Trotskyists. <laughs> <laughs> get out of the neighborhood, Trots! <sighs> all right, so, yeah, I just, I just want to get into that because I, I, I kind of wish that there was still a fucking scene like that where there could just be, like, four or five leftist bookstores in any fucking city. Yeah. Uh, now we struggle to support four or five bookstores at all
2: i watched i watched some of that that movie that you uh were telling me about the um oh I already forgot what it was called
1: it's a weird it's a hard the, name to remember the, it finally got the news
2: finally got the news yeah um it, it's really good so far I haven't finished uh, watching it but um like you know there's scenes of them you know uh putting together their their uh, like flyers and pamphlets and newspapers and stuff where they're just like using typewriters and then like cutting out the, the columns and gluing them on a, on a page and mimeographing the whole thing. Um, so are I mean, it's, it's a pretty primitive, um, I don't know what you'd call it. Newspaper technology by today's standards, but it was kind of cool. They're just, you know, making all these flyers to hand out to all the, the people at the, the entrance to the factory or whatever.
1: I read somewhere that the black star productions, uh, Printing operation they had actually had computerized presses in 1970. Wow, I didn't even know that was a thing. They they well, I mean, you know, pretty rudimentary computers, I'm sure, but they supposedly just pushed them till they break. Like they had the because they, they um now I'm drawing a blank on the newspaper that they um formed
2: the one with the uh, college paper.
1: Well. Uh, That was the Wayne State paper that they took over. Um, That is uh, a different one. That was uh, South End. I'm trying to remember the name of... That's stupid that I can't remember that right now. Um, I'm sure it'll come back to me in a second. But uh, they had a lot of problems getting kicked out of other printing presses because people would find out that uh, a certain printing operation was like uh, printing for them. And because they were openly like communist leftist or whatever, or organizing strikes or agitating, they would get, they would often only get through a few runs with a particular printer and then have to uh, find somebody else. At one point they were having to have things printed out of town and shipped in uh, so once they got a little bit more resources they they started printing everything themselves and printing stuff for other people. I don't know to what all extent uh, that was happening in terms of printing for other people but from what I read they they would run the presses till they broke fix it and run it till it broke again like they were pretty hardcore about it so, yeah, and that and that—that's why it became such a hangout spot because they were running the presses like all night long, so that everything could go out in the morning. So there was just always people at the store.
2: Okay, that does sound like a pretty cool hangout spot. Uh, if I'm honest, you know, like I would, I would hang. Inner out there. City
1: Voice. That was the fucking uh, okay. the newspaper that sort of uh, I think it predated Drum, but was one of the you know central sort of. Things that was used to organize people before. All right, so I'm gonna I'm now I'm gonna get into like the real like decline of of the league, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers specifically, and ultimately a lot of what it comes down to is I discussed James Foreman a little bit. He was the person that had connections through SNCC. He had been a Black Panther Party member. Uh, he had done some organizing in Selma and you know, butted heads a little bit with some of the more religious organizers down there. Now, my impression of James Foreman was that he might have been a little bit full of himself. I couldn't find enough about him to really, like, condemn him for this, but there, there were accounts where either someone else or maybe he himself actually, like, labeled his own school of thought based on his writings as, like, fan informanism. You know, kind of, kind of ripping off like Marxist Leninism or Maoism or whatever. Like they were, it was Franz F- Fannon and James Foreman. Like, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Kind of, man. I mean, that's
3: kind of cringy. It's a very human. Well, shortcut. you know, he might
1: have been an excellent writer with some good theories. So I don't, I don't know. I haven't read anything you wrote. I mean, that could still. be. He, so he could seems be, like he was maybe getting a little bit ahead of himself. Though he, he
3: he could have been fantastic. He could have had really good theories. But if you're naming it yourself after yourself like that, uh, it's it's a little fool of yourself. That's you got to let
1: other people do that. It, it, yeah. That's what it seemed like, but may, maybe it was somebody else calling it that. I second guess myself a lot. I do think that he referred to it as that, but he, he was one of the people who was really central to founding what they called the black workers Congress. And that was, they had discussed the possibility of taking the league of revolutionary black workers and sort of franchising it. To, so that they could spread nationally, because you know the league was really just to organize the local rums in Detroit, and they, they wanted to keep it that way at the end of the day. So their options were start a larger umbrella organization or create individual leagues in other cities to help organize in those cities. Um, yeah, they opted. I, I think it, uh, I think Ken Cockrell actually advised them against doing the sort of franchise one. Uh, because, I forget what it was, but there was some sort of legal issue where uh, Cockrell advised them that they would be better off working under a blanket organization than being so directly connected. Because, I mean, worth worth noting, I don't think I brought this up, the League was like a properly incorporated and legal entity. This wasn't just like what they called themselves or the name that they organized under. They were, I believe, incorporated Hmm. Um cool. so you know that there was legal work done. So they were trying to they were trying to franchise
0: into other cities across the US. Were there already revolutionary union movements there, or was this pretty much just a Detroit thing that they were trying to get started in other cities? Or were were there organizations already existing that they could have reached
1: out to potentially? Okay, there were rums in from what I've read, at least two other cities. I don't think any of them ever had the momentum that Detroit did. I know Atlanta was one of them. That one stuck out to me because I, I grew up around there. But it was not a big thing. But they were trying to spread it, you know, that their idea of organizing the masses, uh, you know, like we discussed them being like almost syndicalist in nature. That, that was what they were trying to do. They were trying to organize revolution in the workplace and on a national scale. Yeah, Which it, is
3: what, which kind of interests me just because I, I would want to know more what, uh, you know, Ken Cockrell's thinking was here. But if you're trying to avoid certain legal troubles, um, that's almost kind of the classic um, anarchist approach is to kind of decentralize where you're like, oh, there's another league of revolutionary black workers for this city and that city. But like they're not they're connected, but also kind of not so that they're not it's not like if one there's one misstep the whole thing comes down which is what can happen with an umbrella organization you, you know you have somewhat more control well, you, I think like he
1: was specifically thinking of it in terms of like RICO cases and stuff like if you're all operating under the banner
3: to me that's almost more well that's if you have like one central organization doing that wouldn't you be more at risk than like a, a loose band of groups doing similar work locally wouldn't you be in greater danger by having that centralized um, leadership
1: I'm gonna be honest here I don't know
3: yeah I uh, guess all I
1: have to go on was I think there was like one or two sentences that de- dedicated to Ken Cockrell's specific yeah. reasoning why he didn't want to uh, franchise out the uh, like leagues hmm but uh F- foreman had his own idea anyway so th- they went with the the black workers congress uh which was going to be the uh, the when i say umbrella organization like it was they were just trying to get people from across the country and they would hold meetings and you would send delegates and you could organize amongst each other without necessarily being formally connected yeah so uh james foreman I believe he, the, the Black Workers' Congress was sort of his, his brainchild, and it seemed like the first get-together for the Black Workers' Congress was pretty good. They had 400 delegates. Uh, it was a, th- a third of the delegates that were sent were women, and this, unlike the League and the, the Rums, uh, they weren't really welcoming of white people still, but... They opened up to other races, which was especially relevant in Detroit because I, I got into it a little bit, but there was an enormous uh, like population of people from the Middle East that had come in to Detroit and were, were treated the same as, as black people. So th- they wanted it to really be an organ like the, the Black Workers Congress, in spite of its name, was for all people of color.
3: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah,
2: in that uh in that film, I mean, they're also printing stuff in Arabic uh for like some flyers or something. I don't know what it says, of course, but
1: Yeah, I don't know a ton about like the the stuff that they would hand out at the job site, but they were like reaching out to I think pretty much everyone that wasn't white, which you know, kind of kind of makes sense. And because there had been like different tendencies amongst league members in terms of in plant organizing versus expanding outward. Once, once the, they founded the Black Workers' Congress, that was sort of the, the final straw. There were still a lot of people on shop floors saying, it's still dangerous to work here. What the fuck are you doing trying to start a national organization? You have on-the-ground work that you need to be doing. The rums were losing s- steam. They were getting a-, a lot of people were getting fired when they had wildcats. A lot of people would lose their jobs over it. Uh, t- two of the lead organizers for uh, the rums, I think they were both dr- like the Dodge or uh, Eldon Avenue plant workers. They got fired for fucking beating up their supervisors, <laughs> which I mean, that's funny. there were- there are so many accounts of violence on the shop floor in some of these plants. It's it's wild. It is, I, I can't even imagine living like that. Like one one of the things that uh, they expressed was basically just don't ever hit your boss because there's a lot of things that you can come back from. But it's in the union rules that if you physically attack a, one of your coworkers or bosses, you get fired. So they. Well, I'm sorry. I think if it was if you were the first one to throw a punch, so they they would encourage people to not throw the first punch. Does that
0: extend off the job site? You know, if I punch my boss at a, at a neutral location, am I good? That's really what I would like to know.
1: Yeah, I think so. <laughs> All right. All right. Good to know. I mean, I'm sure the boss is going to be out to get you after that. <laughs> Hey, not if you punch him hard enough. There was actually a, a funny story. There, there's a story from after sort of the decline of the league and the de- decline of the, the rums where... So, like, by 1970, a lot of the rums had deteriorated heavily, and L-Rum, which at one point was the largest, was the largest shop for, for the rums, was pretty much gone. There was a few members left, and they it's hard to say exactly how many there were because they went They became very secretive. They stopped organizing anything openly and it became like very isolated. I'm not exactly sure where, when this happens in relation to the black workers Congress, but I think it was actually after, so I should hold off. But yeah, actually let's, let's, let's get to what happened with the black workers Congress first. Uh, because of the big falling out between like different members of the league and black workers, Congress and the, the rums, there was an official split. The black workers, Congress was a separate entity than the league. And there was only one organization that the black workers, Congress did not invite to join them. And that was the league of revolutionary black workers. So that's how bad the split was is they no longer wanted to work together formally.
3: Now, what other what other kinds of uh, organizations would they did they invite? Other like revolutionary unions, or were there other larger organizations they were working with, like the Black
1: Panther Party or something? They didn't work heavily with the Black Panther Party. They they were sort of on, on odds. I really don't know what other organizations were involved in the Black Workers Congress. There's not a lot of information about it because it failed so quickly. Hmm but it was it was it was their attempt at having a national movement like an organized national movement
3: sure sure and it and it
1: just it didn't work out yeah so like i said the the black workers congress was was rad for a third of the members that attended the first delegation were women and that also ended up being sort of like one of the big problems that people had not necessarily with the amount of women that attended but Everybody you pretty universally agreed that uh, the like the leadership of the Black Workers Congress did not reflect that like the attitudes of a lot of women. The women in the Black Workers Congress, because they were all women of color, they were like openly hostile towards a lot of like contemporary women's lib sort of uh, organizations because they viewed it as white women's liberation, not like real women's liberation and that was alienating for some people and then the the ever problematic uh they black workers congress was being very forward about trying to include women actually a lot of their demands were centered around um they they were demanding employees employer provided daycare equal pay for women a handful of other things there was there was even one talk of of Somebody was trying to demand pay for for housewives or uh, mothers who had to stay at home. So there was a lot of consideration put into to women's rights. But then there was also just a lot of allegations of domestic violence amongst the ranks of people in attendance of the Black Workers Congress. So, you know, that tends to not be a thing that draws people in. I feel like
3: that's consistent. That's I feel like that's an issue with almost every leftist organization just in general or any kind of organizing attempts, there's this difference between ideology and individual people. And it's just, I'm always shocked by it Cause you're like, how do you, how do you, how are you good on this issue? And then like, but in your personal life, you're just like, Oh, well, you know, I'm going to do the opposite of that. I've never under, I've never understood. I've also never been in a position where it's like, someone is going to judge me in that respect where it's like, Hey you you espouse this, but then you know you're uh, abusive towards your significant other. I mean I'm I don't think I am, so I don't really get too many accusations of such, but I'm also not at that like in, in a major organization where that would come up um, I think but uh,
1: also- that goes back to a lot of like the expression that you, you have to kill the cop in your head. Yeah, you expand I that that's... outward. Like you can have an ideology and still not realize the ways that your own behavior, not only don't inc- like further that ideology, but openly conflict with it. Yeah, that makes. Yeah, sense. Yeah, I think that's really well said. That, I mean, but also, uh, okay, th- this is a little bit like a. I don't want to say conspiracy theory, but I, I I don't know. I'll just throw it out there. There was still lead in gasoline in, in this era. <laughs> and you it's know, like a documented envir- environmental phenomenon that after they removed lead from gasoline, violence went on a steady decline. And people who were born after they stopped putting lead in gasoline were like markedly less violent and had better impulse control. And I'm only bringing that up because there were so many stories about people just fighting on the factory floor and attacking their boss and stuff like that. And I'm just like, surely the world wasn't so insanely different that, like, people were just throwing down with everyone they fucking see on a daily basis compared to now where, like, you know, if there was a fight at my work, that would be a big fucking deal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, And for them, it was it was frequent enough that they kind of had to make specific rules about it. (laughs) Now, granted, you know, my shop's got like 40 people and and these shops had thousands, but you know, I mean, that's not nothing. There is, there is a connection. I'm just putting it out there. that Maybe maybe there was an exterior reason why people had poor impulse control in this point in time.
2: Yeah. And just also like that, like from, from what I saw of the film, uh, it seemed like a very stressful and monotonous and dangerous job, um, especially the the areas where the the black workers were. Um, yeah, so for I can. Sure. I mean, that's not a, an excuse, but I can see how being in that situation would would drive someone towards. It, it it wouldn't bring out the best in people, I could say. But um, yeah, like I said, that's no yeah. It's excuse.
3: just it's always disappointing, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. When you're when you're underpaid, overworked, and stressed out. And, you know, huffing lead fumes from gas all day long. So, uh, not a recipe for success. Right. Yeah, uh, like, so other criticisms that people had were of, of like, the the bigger players in this story, like Ken Cockrell, John Watson, Mike Hamlin, everybody had pretty specific complaints about them. For all of the good that he did, a lot of people felt like Ken Cockrell was just being overbearing and, in a lot of cases, accused him of reformism, which... I will get into I, I don't wholly disagree with with some of those uh, accusations, but he was he was doing good work. You know, I'll give him credit for what he was doing. Uh, John Watson kind of became absent from the league by and large. He was very much into traveling around the world and doing film stuff, trying to, you know, get production. He like he was acute or uh, uh, criticized for. He started trying to make a movie about Rosa Luxemburg. Um, that was something that he was trying to get funding for. And a lot of people were like, yeah, that would be a really good movie. We like your idea. But why the fuck are you doing this? It has nothing to do with anything that is going on in y'all's situation right now. And I don't want to accuse him of just being a creative type who was pursuing like artistic endeavors. But it became... At least somewhat detrimental to the league overall because he wasn't really contributing to organizing. So he viewed him, he viewed what he was doing as contributing by spreading the word. And other people were like, No, we need you to contribute by actually helping us improve the shop.
3: Yeah. So at that time, was he still kind of in a leadership position? Because, like,
1: he was on the executive board of the league. Yeah, that's not
3: yeah okay i mean again there's nothing wrong with leaving organizing to like pursue other things but like don't still be in leadership then
1: i guess is... no, I mean, he, he was the one who founded black star productions and he was and that was an arm of the league
3: yeah i mean i'm see that to me is like if you pursue that project and you kind of take it in a different direction that's fine but like don't don't leave your other responsibilities behind. Like you should give that like, hey, I'm gonna be absent from this side of the organizing. Someone else should should step in here would be the way to handle that, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I mean it's 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 a valid criticism, but his side of the argument is also valid. Like he yeah, wanted no, exactly. to spread the word they wanted to focus strictly on what was going on in shop. And that was roughly their criticism of Mike Hamlin too. He he was kind of uh became very well connected through all of this and started traveling around the country a lot and became very focused on national issues more than the local ones that the league was actually there to to deal with. And so effectively all of of the big founding members of the league they kind of just got accused of of pr- preferring the company of, of the bourgeois over the, their actual workers
2: So they were kind of um, glad handing with film buffs or Hollywood types is that is that what the accusation was or
1: Ken Cocker was getting involved in local politics. Okay. John Watson was traveling around doing film stuff. He had, he had been to Europe a couple of times at this point. I don't remember specific stuff, but Mike Hamlin was focusing on national issues. He was uh, big in helping form the Black Workers Congress. And yeah, they they were all trying to, to do these kind of big pie in the sky ideas and just neglecting the stuff that was going on at home while they were still effectively the leadership of that.
3: Yeah, it's a recipe for disaster. I can I get their side of it like yeah I want to be I'd want to be more national too I always want to spread spread the word you know it feels good to go big but um yeah if you're still at the leadership on this local project you need to either seed um that power to someone who's present or you need to focus on that so I, I
1: and and some organizations made it work um There were several Black Panther Party members who would fly around the country and and go to international branches to make sure that things were running smoothly at each individual branch. There's stories. I know Donald Cox showed up in one city at some point, realized that, you know, there were drug problems rampant amongst the ranks of the Black Panthers. In that city, they, it was poorly organized. It really had just was in shambles. And so he really relocated there for, I think, a couple of months and kind of whipped that branch back into shape. Hmm. So there is a role for that sort of like jet-setting lifestyle. Like, he traveled all over the world doing uh, work for the, the Black Panther Party. But they had a huge base of operations where they could afford to have a few individual members who were traveling the world. The league was a lot smaller than that. They they didn't have really the spare manpower, yeah. And I think everybody realized that John Watson was was just being being a little bit too much of a dreamer when he tried is trying to make a movie about Rosa Luxemburg, who doesn't jive with them ideolo- ideologically necessarily because you know she was not a Leninist, she was not black, she was not American, she was not even in the same like era that they were in. So people were like, you are not really focused on what is going on at hand right now.
2: Yeah, I mean it sounds like they got a little overextended uh basically they they focused their horizon a little too far out then than uh, they were able to
1: back up with the, the resources they had. I think that if I had to put myself in their shoes I think maybe they just didn't realize how much work was going to be involved in not even just growing the ranks of the rums but maintaining them. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one thing to recruit new members, but they were constantly struggling with having members fired because there was a lot of criticisms of of like wildcats that they took of them being poorly planned and just resulting in too many people being fired for them.
3: Yeah, that's a big that is a big criticism. You know, yeah, it's when we're talking about it, whatever it is, 50 years later, and we're like, oh, well, a bunch of people got fired for these wildcat strikes. That fucking blows. That is your livelihood. Like, if you're the one who gets fired for it, you're fucked. I mean, you're just you are in a bad place. And that's multiple people. You can't you really have to avoid that Um, because, like, it's easy to forget that, like, that is. Hugely life altering For the people who experienced it You know yeah from the leadership perspective You're like oh well I think It's it's that it's like That old um, That quote that is attributed to Stalin I don't know if he actually said it But the uh, you know one death is A tragedy a million deaths is, Is a statistic it's kind of the Same here you know X number of firings Is just doing you know business of organizing but like every single one of those is really really bad for the people
1: experiencing it is kind of you know oh yeah but i also get where they were coming from like i think they generally viewed the uaw as overly bureaucratic and not consequently not really representing them sure so then they wanted to be the organization that you know when something went wrong on a monday they could respond on a tuesday and in theory, that's great. They just got ahead of themselves. They were behaving that way, but they didn't have the resources.
3: Yeah. Which that kind of, So, Well, I'll let you finish up, but... I. Oh, go ahead. You know, kind of bringing back into, like, the UAW um, and the idea that there are still these other unions involved who aren't as revolutionary um, and they're maybe a little too close to management and whatnot, what was the relationship or the response from, like, the UAW. How did they react to... They did not like that. I figured. So how was that interaction? And, like, were they almost trying to union bust the more re- revolutionary union at all? Was that a phenomenon that was
1: happening? Well, you know, the the Wildcats that the Rums were doing, they weren't 100% participation. Like, even, even the better ones had high participation probably in the 70 percent range but still only for a, a day or two yeah there were a lot of people who if they showed up to work and there was a picket line they went home not because they supported what was being picketed but because they supported other people in the union sure but that only went so far so i think if i I, I think that the UAW really didn't have to do any union busting. They were they were too weak of a faction inside. Now the UAW was openly critical of them and was not especially quiet about it. They uh, did some sort of backhanded stuff to try and prevent Rum supported uh, like elected union officials from from gaining office.
2: Yeah, they um, they went in and like stole the ballot boxes or something like that right
1: yeah that was that was the one that i had uh, attributed to the case of jordan sims but in it was someone else and i can't remember the person's name but yeah they they seized the ballot boxes and were like counting them out of sight of 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 anybody who was trying to watch over it Hmm. you know it some of the tactics that the unions were doing looked like i mean i don't want to say pinkerton tactics because they weren't like openly shooting people. But it, it seemed like, like hired hand kind of strong arm shit. But it was union folks. Yeah, see, that's it. what
3: I was wondering is, you know, would we see these more moderate, comfortable unions seeing these revolutionary unions as a threat enough that they might do the same kinds of things that, you know, management would do? Are they saying... Hey, don't join those Revolutionary Union guys. They're gonna get you into trouble. And we're a family here. We're here to take care of those safety concerns. It takes us four weeks to, you know, even do anything. And there's, you know, a million miles of red tape. But we're a family, and you lose that when you get into the room you know, the rum or whatever. Um, Where they kind of they. So it sounds like they were discouraging that kind of organizing, and they were trying to stop workers from from. You know,
1: engage leadership them. didn't like them. A lot of the rank and file union members mostly kind of seemed like annoyed with them. Okay, yeah, like they just thought maybe they were making a mountain out of a Mo- molehill, or you know, just blowing things out of proportion. A lot of because a lot of RUM members were young. Yeah, and so a lot of the older union guys of of any race, black or white or anyone else, people who had been on the job longer tended to be more skeptical of their tactics because they had been in the union for a while and for better or worse viewed it as, no, you just got to be patient and and you'll get what you need. Eventually. I do
3: feel, I feel like that is kind of a, a a problem with a lot of unions today is you get these older members who are just like, Oh, you just, you know, Oh, it's not a big deal. And it's like, man, back when it was a big deal, people got fucking paid, like
1: you know? I don't know, man. I I've I look back at this era as like, you know, because I think 1969 was the highest minimum wage ever when you account for inflation. But then I, I'm reading about these folks who are, you know, doing six and seven day weeks, 10 and 12 hour days just to, you know, pay the bills, you know, working like buku overtime and it sounded like a lot of them were still struggling. Hmm. So, you know, I've, I've talked to my older coworkers about what things were like back then. Cause you know, I, I kind of tend to romanticize the seventies for all of the revolution, like revolutionary attitudes and also just awesome cars. And you know, I've, I've had coworkers be like, it's, it's not like what you were describing. We still struggled. It was fucking hard. Hmm. We weren't, making so much money that we were just living high on the hog like it might have been easier for us then than it is for you now but that doesn't mean it was easy for us then i
2: wonder were they getting time and a half also or when did that start they
1: were getting time and a half but it was mandatory overtime okay in at, at least some instances there were it's cited that they you would be written up for not working overtime yeah and at that point like Basically, you're telling me that you can work me to death. You'll just pay me slightly better. Fuck that. Yeah, it's, that's bullshit. <laughs> I, I used to work every fucking hour of overtime that I was able to, and I am so over that shit. Nowadays, I just want to be paid for the work I fucking do, enough to live, and not any fucking more. Man, maybe if I've got to buy a new engine, or I can maybe almost afford a blower. I'll fucking work an extra couple of hours one week, but... You know, that's 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 for toys. Like you shouldn't be having to work 50 and 60 hour weeks to survive. And I used to have to do that shit. Yeah, that
2: that shit sucks. I mean, when I was really poor, is I had the opposite problem. I couldn't get enough hours because they didn't want to put me to full time and, you know, pay me benefits and stuff like that. Uh, I think that's, you know, more the case these days where they're like, oh, we're going to give you 38 hours exactly every week.
1: I think of, like, it to me, that looks like the divide between, I know a lot of people are iffy on this language, but, like, skilled and unskilled labor, if it's hard to find somebody, and, like, at my job, I'm a machinist, and I do a lot of welding, it's hard to find someone else with that skill set, and then if you do, you're going to have to give them benefits, because if you don't, somewhere else will, like, we're we're having a hard time hiring right now, just because our benefits kind of suck, and our pay is mediocre.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah, same.
1: It's, it's cheaper to work people overtime than it is to hire more people when you like factor in uh, uh, insurance and like 401k or whatever, all that shit. So they would rather just work the people they have harder than get more people, which is a shitty fucking attitude. We're over here demanding f- 40 hours pay for 30 hours work, and they're like, what about 50 hours pay for 60 hours work? <laughs> <laughs> Ah, I've that, that's that's been a huge tangent. So basically, <laughs> uh, to, to to leave off with the, the black workers' congress, it just failed. You know, I, I summed it up and, and what some of its problems were and its its failures. It didn't really seem to have a lot of successes. They had a lot of good ideas and the first meeting was well attended, but that was also the most well attended meeting they ever had. They never had any success growing the ranks and the Black Workers Congress. So I'm not sure when that formally dissolved. I think like 71ish, but it was it was done pretty quickly. It it never even really got off the ground. The league on the other hand actually kind of kept chugging along for a little bit in weird ways. So in on Easter in 1971, they purged a bunch of members and i couldn't find out a whole lot more about that i just thought i just included that mostly because how much communists love to purge the ranks
0: <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> but they got rid of a bunch of of members who who had some some conflicting ideology i think maybe they got rid of some of the more hardcore like nationalist types so we're talking rank and file people they were kind of getting rid of it they listed all of the names for people that were uh, they got rid of in the Easter Purges, and I didn't recognize them, but the executive board was a lot bigger than the four founding members, so I'm really not sure
3: hmm.
1: the roles that the individuals who who got stripped out of the ranks were playing. Yeah, because b- by this point, every imp- all the information I can find is fairly chaotic. But uh, in '71, the league came to a formal conclusion. But it got folded in and became the Detroit chapter of the Communist League. So it actually still existed and I, I think I think it stayed as the Detroit chapter of the Communist League until seventy six or seventy eight-ish.
3: Now, um, if you don't mind, what is the, the- Communist League. I'm not familiar with that organization. Were they like a, the Communist Party or were they a rival to the Communist Party in the U.S. or were they, I don't know, a blanket organization?
1: I mean, they were basically a Marxist Leninist organization for people of color, as far uh, as I and I'm tell. sorry.
3: So they fo- so this was an already existing organization, right? The Communist League?
1: Yeah. Uh, The the League of Revolutionary Black Workers just kind of swapped over and became the Detroit branch. I don't know. I think there wasn't a branch of the Communist League. I don't know a ton about the Communist League. I didn't dive into it too hard. But I guess in the 50s, they split off from uh, the Communist Party of the United States, CPUSA. And the Communist League was around until... Shit, now I can't... Like I said, late 70s. And that, at that point, it became another organization called the Communist Labor Party of North America. And that stayed around till 93. So in some shape, form, or fashion, they, they kind of stuck around for a couple of decades. I don't know how many of the original members stayed around, but, you know, th- th- there was a little bit of staying power there. They just kept changing names.
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, that's, that's kind of natural. I mean, that's just, you know, that happens. Um, so they kept folding into other organizations and whatever. I mean, that's... You, you save what's there and they keep doing the organizing work
1: on the ground. So, you know, yeah, I don't know how effective the work that they were doing was in that era because you know, yeah, the eighties weren't really the bastion of leftist politics. No, we would all, all like, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't maybe there was a leftism going on in the eighties, but I don't personally know much about anything big going on during the Reagan years. Yeah,
3: mostly Re- mostly Reagan and you know punk music that was anti Reagan.
1: <laughs> yeah, but in the eighties, a lot of punk music was anti communist too.
3: Yeah, yeah, it was. Oh, we're a conflicted bunch.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so the one last cool thing that I'll cover before I start wrapping this up is after the league became, or after the League of Revolutionary Black Workers became the Communist League. They had one good summer left in them. And in 1973, there was a series of wildcat strikes throughout the summer. The first one was on July 24th at the Jefferson Assembly Plant. Two dudes, Isaac Shorter and Larry Carter, who at this point, I I don't know for a fact that they were in the Communist League, but they were affiliated with a lot of uh, former uh, league and, and rum workers. They climbed into like the control cage for the assembly line and manually shut down the entire assembly <laughs> line because there was a foreman at the shop that was widely regarded as openly racist. So they petitioned to have him removed and they got something like 250, 260 out of 300 workers to sign the petition to have him removed. Damn. And the company was like, no, fuck you. We're leaving him. And so they shut down the assembly line. They stayed in the cage for, I think, 13 hours preventing anybody from coming in and turning the assembly line back on. That's fucking awesome. Nice. Yeah, they they had crowds of people uh, blocking the way so that uh, even if they wanted to, police or guards or nobody were, were able to get into the cage. So, you know, a g- good show of solidarity there. That's awesome.
0: So oh, 13-hour shutdown What's that? What does that translate to in, like, number of vehicles uh, not made for 13 hours of shutdown? How big of a dent did
1: they put in that shop's uh, production? I'm not really sure because I'm not even sure what, off the top of my head, the Jefferson plant made. Because a lot of these, even saying that they prevented one car from being made, that's... The more I think about it, the more iffy that is, because a lot of these plants would make axles or engines or body panels. So you you could cause bottlenecks and stuff. I don't know to what extent. I think Jefferson was just an assembly plant. So they might have actually very genuinely been preventing cars from being put together. In terms of how many they prevented in a 13-hour period, I would guess, I don't know, maybe... Hundred, couple hundred,
0: so not an insignificant amount. They were really slowing things down.
1: I, I don't know. It wasn't you know a few. I, if I had to make a genuine guess, completely ballparking, several hundred cars. Awesome.
3: Yeah, I mean, yeah, even without w- without knowing even specific numbers, what what I can tell you is just in any really any industrial setting, a shutdown like that is pretty catastrophic these plants are incredibly expensive to run um, especially labor intensive things where you have a lot of labor um, a lot of machinery a lot of you know lights rent, uh, all that stuff the cost of production is very very high um, and kind of like we talked about with the tendency of the rate of profit to fall that is especially relevant to you know the largest of corporations so automakers are affected by that More so than a lot of other industries. So if you shut down for 13 hours, like that's a plant that is running 24 hours a day, right? So they've got three eight hour shifts. If you shut down for, you know, 13 hours, that is more than a shift and a half, a little bit more than a shift and a half. And that factory will run 24 hours and it might be profitable 20 of those hours. Ball it could be less, it could be prof, or excuse me. It may be not profitable for 20 of those hours and only profitable for four. It may only be profitable for two hours of, of a, of a day.
1: Now, the other thing is I can put this in some pretty tangible terms, just not in terms of cars. Well, uh, uh, are you guys familiar with, are you guys familiar with Matco tools? Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. One of my coworkers used to work at a Matco manufacturing plant. And he told me that they were very upfront. That the the assembly line never fucking stops. Because if something broke and they genuinely had to stop the assembly line for any reason, it cost the company several hundred thousand dollars an hour.
0: So it's safe to say, with a thirteen hour shutdown, they made their point to management. It's yeah. yeah, it's
1: huge. I mean, they they got the guy fired. So oh, what a great ending. Yeah, love the, to see it. Honestly, I I I figure. If it only took thirteen hours, they were ju- they didn't really give a shit about this dude. It was like, actually, you know, we—we we are willing to f- throw this dude under the fucking bus because you guys are costing us a fortune for this <laughs> shithead. I would
3: argue, actually, a thirteen-hour shutdown was probably cost the company, you know, thirteen times that guy's salary. I would think um, it
1: is no, so much more than I, that.
3: Exactly, you're not. I'm, yeah. yeah. So at least, um, what it costs any company in an industrial setting to shut down, there's all sorts of costs associated with it. But here's the other thing to keep in mind. And this is, um, something just to know for organizing in general, uh, the way costs and revenue work to companies is like really, really lopsided, which is why companies are always, they'll always strive to cut costs rather than make more money. Because costs are way more detrimental to them. So, like, a loss of $1 uh, in terms of cost is the same as losing, like, $50 in sales for a lot of companies. Like, as an average. So, across industries. So, like, if you cost the company $300,000, that's the same as, like, $3 million in sales or something. Like, the impact is multiplied. Hugely. So that's why, you know, union organizing is as effective as it is in the first place is because costs are so much worse to companies. than you're not just cutting sales like that's cutting sales is not a big deal. But when you cut you when you hurt like actual costs, when you damage product or stop product from being made, the impact is like it, it is, you know, more like 10 times five to 10 times more impactful at least or 50 times or whatever. I can verify. Is.
1: I scrapped a $500 piece of co- copper cause I misread a blueprint two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That hurt. Trust me. That hurt.
2: <laughs> yeah. I've, I've seen that kind of thing happen like all the time. And, and I imagine also like being shut down for 13 hours, like the raw materials, the inputs are piling up, uh, you know, and they're, they're missing the deliveries of stuff that they're, they have to ship out, you know, like, It's it's there's other people in other facilities that are probably sitting on their hands because they can't, you know, get things moving to this other plant or out of this other plant, you know. Uh, So there's ripple effects like you're saying.
3: That's by the way, just another random tangent um, that is way more true today than it has ever been in the past, because in the past they didn't have computer systems that can track everything. So you bought a little bit more. You had greater inventories. Now everything is just-in-time inventory. So right. you,
1: yeah, I was, I was about to say what you're talking about is just-in-time yep. deliveries. Yep. So yeah. even
3: more so today, that stuff has greater effect.
2: Like last year, when everyone ran out of
1: toilet, that's paper. why shit got so fucked up when COVID. Yeah. Came.
2: Everyone ran out of toilet paper, you know. Yep. Because there wasn't any in the stores sitting around like there would have been 50 years ago
1: exactly well there wasn't because there's like a handful of idiots who thought that toilet paper was the real go-to <laughs> fucking thing yeah, yeah I, no i mean there's
2: definitely people hoarding toilet paper but it was also supply lines were uh way fucked up so
1: i'm, I'm gonna keep going here yeah, sorry go ahead. towards the end of august uh that same summer there was another wildcat at the chrysler forge plant And this one was a response to, I think in a single week, one worker had his arm ripped off by a piece of machinery. And then another one had his hand crushed. And so they let a wildcat strike, you know, for, for improved safety. And that was led by, I don't have a specific name for the guy, but it was led by a former drum member and somebody who was, who was still in the, the communist league. They kept that going for six days. Um, I, think that they got at least some some gains from it I don't know if they got everything they wanted but you know the, these people were hurting them you know what, right there we've got seven seven and a half days of production lost. Oh yeah this is this is great and it goes back to what I was saying earlier and you guys were talking about the relationship between the unions and, and the rums and all mm-hmm. at, at that particular wildcat John Taylor who was a guy that I, I discussed a little bit in the first part, who was a Motor City Labor League member? He was he was there for the Wildcat at Chrysler Forge, and I guess he was being very outspoken and there with the Motor City Labor League. And one of the union officials, a dude named Doug Fraser, uh, called out John Taylor specifically, and in spe- specifically in respect to what you said, Zach. John or Doug Fraser told John Taylor to meet him out in the parking lot so that he could wolf his ass. <laughs> and John Taylor and John Taylor's response was, yeah, let's go. And the dude immediately backed down because he thought that he was just going to scare him. And the guy's like, no, I'm going to fucking go outside and beat your fucking ass. Uh. I mean, like, yeah, dude, don't fuck with communists. We're used to losing. We're, our, the name of the fucking game is getting your shit kicked in and keep going. Yep. <laughs> yeah, pretty accurate. So uh, as that, that strike lasted for six days. And then the, day, the first day that they went back, there was another wildcat at uh, Mac, the Mac stamping plant that was led by other former ROM members. So, you know, not not too shabby for a two month period, because you know, b- before before drum, I think uh, it had been something like ten years since Dodge had had any Wildcats. I might have I might be misremembering that number, but it was it was a significant chunk of time, and then th- then the rums come along and really start stirring shit up. And as I sort of alluded to before, there are some people who speculate that. The decline of the rums was either because of their success, or at the very least, other people were fighting for the same stuff. Because people tended to get less fired up because they were actually getting like winning their demands. They were getting more uh, black representatives in management and, and higher up in the union. They were they were making moderate gains. You know, there there were safety improvements being made. You know, it was going all right for them so that's uh that's sort of the end of these organizations but there's a couple of other things that i also want to talk about these people had like electoral success i i didn't touch on it a whole lot but ken Cockrell, who again was was a founding member of the league He had, he, people were encouraging him to run for mayor and he refused to ever run any sort of symbolic races where he was trying to bring issues to light or anything like that. So in, at some point in the late seventies, I think maybe 78, he got elected to Detroit city council. Hmm. Okay. Um, and I think he remained on Detroit city, on the Detroit city council until his death in the eighties. Wow. Wow. Sheila Murphy, who was the organizer behind Ad Hoc, she was the one whose dad was the anarcho-Catholic, she later became Sheila Cockrell because she actually married Ken Cockrell. She remained on city council from the 80s into the early 2000s. Huh. Wow. And then one of what I can gather is the biggest electoral successes that they had was a, a Motor City Labor League member named Justin Ravitz. He was elected as a judge in 1973 and he had been he had been known to be a radical Marxist attorney working in Detroit. I cannot remember how directly involved Ken Cockrell was in the James Johnson case where the guy came in and shot three, like the two supervisors and job setter. Justin Ravitz was one of his def, uh, defense attorneys. Justin Ravitz also... Had several lawsuits that he led against stress, which was the uh, stop robberies, enjoy safe streets, uh, Detroit program for, that the police were doing where they were effectively just setting up people and then fucking killing them and beating them and just being extraordinarily and unnecessarily violent. Uh, Ravitz was one of the people who helped get stress ended. And. If they're one of the most discouraging things that I read about his policies were that so many of the things that Justin Ravitz fought for were shit that we're still fighting for, and this is fifty fucking years ago. He was uh, uh he opposed uh, the cash bond system. He, man, I don't even have a list of all the stuff he did, but he his his goal was interesting, and actually, really, all of their goals at onset were interesting in that they never viewed electoral success as a win in its own right, by by their claims, their only goal in getting into elected positions was to remove hurdles from actual revolutionary movements. Which is pretty fucking rad. Which is
3: what I, I've always thought should be the goal when it comes to electoral politics, or, or at least one of the main priorities. Because, like, I... I'm never comfortable when people are like, oh, we can't do electoralism at all. I'm like, "Uh, you know, (laughs) that's where we're at right now. I feel like you can remove some barriers there that there's good work to be done. So I'm, I'm never comfortable with like, we shouldn't do that. I'm also never sure if we should focus more on that. You know, sometimes when it's like, well, here, even back in the day, we did have people in all these elected positions fighting for the same shit we're fighting for today. We could argue that, well, there hasn't, been so much success on that front but also maybe because we didn't do enough of it i don't know
1: um so i'm always torn on that I issue but it's interesting i'm not much of an advocate of concerning yourselves over like national elections but on a local level you can affect genuine material change that's yeah th- there were justin Rabbit specifically i read accounts of him opening up court in the middle of the night so that he could uh, prevent somebody from having to like, if if he felt like charges were not fair or if the person needed process quickly, he would open up court at night just to hear the case and get the person processed. Huh? He implemented some sort of policy where they weren't, it was, it, it discouraged the police from arresting somebody with the intention of detaining them for 24 to 48 hours. Uh, He made it so that if someone was arrested, they had to be charged almost immediately.
3: Yeah, that's good work. And he
1: was, to be clear, like this guy wasn't like a subtle radical. He was an openly Marxist judge on the bench. He encouraged reactionaries to come, like have like dialogue with him because. Apparently, he just had a very personable way about him where people would condemn him for being a radical Marxist and then come talk to him for an hour and walk away like, well, that guy's got a lot of good <laughs> ideas and he's doing some good work in the community. That's awesome. This guy sounds awesome. I mean, I yeah, want I, more of this. I, I couldn't more judges like a this. Ton, a ton of information about him, but he seems like the real fucking deal. What was his name one more time? And interesting enough. What's that? I just want to know. What was his name one more time? Justin Ravitz, R A V I T Z. Okay,
3: yeah, he sounds like quite an interesting character. Definitely like worth, you know, maybe looking into more. I mean, I don't know about for this. We podcast, actually have but... a
1: socialist judge in Pittsburgh. Uh, he's not full blown Marxist to to my knowledge, though. I think he has those leanings. He lives up the road from me. I don't know a lot about the successful work that he's done so far. I know that he cut evictions down in his first year on the bench by 60%. Yeah,
3: that's that's a huge
1: deal. That matters. Like you can condemn electoralism all you want to, but hundreds of people have homes now that wouldn't otherwise because of the work that he did. So I'm 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 going to go out of my way to vote anytime that he's on the ballot. We've got a couple of other people like that locally. I'm not the best for being involved in politics locally, but I, I do try and do some reading and some research. It, like funny enough, the the local socialist judge that we had, because he was still working within, the you know the the system that we exist in, he was able to uh, appoint not deputies, not cops, uh, um, constables. I think
0: Constable. Yeah, I think you and I. He elected
1: a. Co- oh, did I tell you about this? Yeah, he uh uh the, the the local guy his his name is um his name's Mick. He he brought my a buddy of mine on as a fucking constable. And that dude's a fucking hardcore communist. Like nice. Learned German so he could read the original Marx.
3: I I mean, that's yeah. excessive. <laughs> that is excessive. Come on. <laughs>
1: I mean, the dude's got, like, three master's degrees, so... Well, I mean, he did study in Germany, so it wasn't exactly not beneficial to him in other yeah, ways. Sure. But, yeah, he bred he, he Marx in the original German, as somebody who learned German in his, like, late teens and 20s. Better him than me, fuck that. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's that's the whole story or in as as much as I'm going to get into it, because I have dedicated like the last three or four weeks of my life to learning about the nuanced ins and outs of Detroit politics from like 1967 to like 74. Yeah. <laughs> but here's here's something that I wanted to address. And I, I talked about this earlier. This this is not history. This is analysis. I didn't get into this too much, but Ken Cockrell, uh, I think Justin Rabbits was somewhat guilty of this. A lot of people that we have been discussing here for the last few hours, you know, after they got experience organizing, after they got experience in politics, a lot of them never became workers again. They became professional organizers. A lot of them went on I believe Mike Hamlin, I think it was, became a professor. Ken Cockrell and and Sheila Murphy slash Sheila Cockrell, lifetime politicians once they got out of this movement. Maybe they did good, but they became very removed from the proletariat, and it Reading the story, it was concerning because so many of these people who had this passionate and dedicated dedication towards these issues walked away from it with with basically nothing after, you know, the mid to late 70s, except like kind of just being fucking libs.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, that's it's hard to to make a movement that's sustainable. Like, I think we talked about this or maybe I was talking with someone else, but like, you know, there's there's all these uh, all these activists that burn out after you know 2 years, 5 years, whatever. It's it's hard to keep people um engaged with these kind of things, especially if they're losing all the time. Um and what you end up having instead is if you well, sometimes you you have a just a rotating door of people coming in, getting uh energized and doing the work and then getting burned out and then leaving um and it's it's difficult to create any organization that has staying power uh for a long
1: time i guess more the point that like i really want to put in here though is isn't necessarily like take the case of ken cockrell the dude by every measure did really important work within the League of Revolutionary Black Workers and even beyond that. The the work that he did as an attorney was important and it was good. And I haven't read much about what he accomplished if anything significant while he was on the city council. But more the point that I want to get to is that these people didn't just remove themselves from the working class. They they kind of abandoned it. Like Ken Cockerell's son is a, an attorney of law at Yale. Like their whole family is it like became bourgeoisie.
2: Yeah, I guess. The, I mean, that's another thing is if you're using it as a stepping stone to further your own career. That's uh,
3: not what I would
1: call revelation. And I would I would I would hesitate to say that that was the goal. It just sort of ended up being what happened. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, one of the things I think we need to <clears throat> recognize um, is that we're all human beings. and kind of with the burnout um, you know of of activism, um I think we also have to recognize that like we are human beings, and it's like you you put in that five, six, seven years of radical organizing, and I get if like you're just like, well, I kind of want to focus on my own career and be comfortable. You know, I don't want to be. You know scraping by all the time I, I get it we're all human we want A comfortable life For ourselves and that's not Even I, I'm not trying to condemn that I'm, I'm trying I'm, I don't want to Necessarily like I guess I, I guess I am defending it but like I get it you know you, you do The work you can um, And then after a while you're like I Get if you just want to Be comfortable for yourself there's nothing Wrong with that per se However, it's when your ideas kind of become like you start, you know, identifying with the bourgeoisie. That's when it's like a problem when like there's nothing wrong with making good money. Like if you're like, hey, I can make good money, whatever, and I can do set up for my children to do well, who maybe might be a professor at Yale. But like in that situation, I your kids hopefully are raised with some radical ideas to be, you know what I mean? Like you should still be a radical. There's nothing wrong with like, Hey, I've done my bit, you know, now I do have to focus on myself a little bit. I don't think that's necessarily wrong. We're all human beings just looking for our, our comfort in the comfort of others. Um, So I don't want to condemn that kind of thing, but like when your ideas soften, that's to me kind of weird where it's like, well, yeah, that's where it's like, well, you should still at least be like advocating for communism or, or anarchism, or whatever it is you're advocating. Um, but, like, I understand that it's, like, it's not everyone's individual responsibility to be the radical warrior for, you know, 50 years of their life. I You know, I get that. Um, but, yeah, it is kind of weird when their ideas start to, when they when they're still vocal about their ideas, and their ideas are pretty, like, liberal kind of shit, and you're like, that I don't understand fully.
1: I mean, I'm I'm reluctant to be overly critical because I don't know the work that they were doing on the city council, but Detroit's not notorious for being a, a, a sort of radical paradise at this point, so I, I I'm reluctant to think that they did anything too great. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that they didn't do really important material, like, substantive things for the people of Detroit. They just have not really done anything to further any sort of radical ideas oh and to correct myself real quick i said that it was ken cockrell's son that is a law professor at yale it's james foreman his his son is a law professor now gotcha so yo that that's that's it that's the end of like
3: a month of fucking research (laughs) that's good yeah it's good to just like look into these things and see where they went wrong or what that's just like what was successful what worked
1: what didn't work you know it's important
2: yeah yeah, definitely.
1: It's also good to, like, not have a deadline when you're in a rabbit hole. I'm, I'm real good for, like, going on, like, two or three days of, of tangential research and being like, this has nothing to do with what I was just fucking reading about.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a little ADD, so I, I appreciate the rabbit trails. That's good.
1: <laughs> you, you guys only pay- ask me questions about the rabbit trails I didn't pursue, too, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> what what'd you say, Zach. I was just saying, it's just painting more,
0: uh, you know, more colorful, colorful picture, more nuanced uh, view of it. That's all it is. Just putting it in context. That's my. I did
1: learn a lot about this. Like I had no idea about all of the conference. Oh, I think there's like just enough lag that we're really good at talking over each other today. I feel like
0: yeah, you and I, Brandon, keep lagging like really hard between us because I'll start saying something and then it's just like right in the middle.
1: Yeah, my bad. (laughs) Uh, It's just technology
0: sucks.
1: (laughs) Yeah. All right. We're we're just rambling right now. We want to call it a night?
0: Uh, Yeah, I'll I'll kill the
2: recording at least, unless you got something else to say.
1: I I got nothing. I got brain melt right now. We're
0: going to make you fight five to five, bitch. We're going to make you fight five to water, bitch. We're going to fight riches and not riches, but we're going to fight the solidarity. We think we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we're going to fight the socialism. Amazingly, or not so amazingly, Cuba's crime rate is one of the lowest in the entire hemispheres. Oddly enough, it seems that when people have their basic human needs met, they're less likely to commit crimes. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some
1: serious shit. The free market mythology, it argues that the most ruthless, selfish, opportunistic, greedy, calculating plunderers applying the most heartless measures in cold-blooded pursuit of corporate interest and wealth accumulation will, will produce, produce the, the best, best results, results for all of us <laughs> through something called the invisible hand.
0: <laughs> what are you smiling about? Dude, I almost had you.